Last week um, was Mother's Day. And so we had parent-child dedication here. For those of you here, you knew that. It's kind of a special time. Uh, so we, we decided to just do something special. We had our elementary kids stay in for the service. But it was kind of interesting as a pastor. You know, our kids are in here, and my children were in here as well. My six-year-old and my eight-year-old was sitting right here on the front on the front row. Caleb was sitting next to Aunt Lindsay, and then Jen, and then Sydney Beth was sitting uh, right next to her. And so you're speaking, and you're trying to, you know, not speak over their heads too much and, 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 and communicate. But I'm, I'm sitting here, and, and apparently I'm about five minutes into my sermon, and Caleb leans over to Aunt Lindsay and says, man, this is way more boring than my church. <laughs> and then he follows up with, right? You know, Right? I'm very thankful that I'm secure enough not to care about the opinion of a six-year-old, especially mine. But what I realize is everybody has an opinion, right? If you're around me, I always tell you, I'll I'll tell you, I said, listen, don't ask unless you want my opinion, because I got all kinds of them, all right? Um, But everyone has an opinion. When I think about the church, since everyone is a critic, who should we listen to? And I mean, obviously, we should listen to God and listen to his instruction, his word. That's kind of a given. But uh, of the people that we know, who should we listen to? What should we really be aware of um, when it comes to our own church? Scripture tells us clearly that plans fail for lack of counsel. We should get godly counsel from people that we know are walking uh, with Christ. But as I was thinking about this question, I couldn't get away from the fact that the opinion uh, that bothers me the most is the opinion of people who are outside of the church. I don't know if that should bother me as much as it does, but it, but it really does. Because I'm thinking these are the people who uh, maybe have no hope or maybe are searching for something. I think, man, their opinion of who I am is important to me. I think one of the things that always surprised me about the early church was its reputation among non-believers. Um, because it was, it was the opposite of ours today. Did you know that? that? In fact, the Roman leaders were constantly amazed by the early church. They were so amazed that they were even threatened by them because what they were doing appealed to so many people. And that they were known, their reputation of, they called it the way, was of that of a people who cared for and provided for each other. Right? Their reputation was of a people that was inclusive, not exclusive. That they were forgiving, not judgmental. That they were people who led with love instead of law. They were known as a people who lived fully what they said um, that they believed. And so today, if you were to go out, talk to your friends or people you know who are not involved in church, what would they say the church is all about? Well, Study after study has been done, and two things rise to the top every single time. That the church is filled with people who are judgmental when they shouldn't be, and filled with what? Hypocrites. Nice reputation, isn't it? Um, you know, we probably contribute to that a little. <laughs> but even if we didn't, whatever, to me, that really bothers me. Because both of these things are rooted in a world that believes that the church, they believe that the church does not do what we say is important to us. That's their perception, and our perception is our what? Reality. That we have a creed that we do not live by, generally. That is the reputation. 
Now, we could sit back and we say, well, that's not true. There's, there's always an exception, whatever it may be. But I'm telling you, the true skeptical world has a belief that we have a creed that we not live by. And our, when our lives do not match what we say we value, here's the problem. We lose credibility and we lose the ability to be heard. And that should concern us, us if what we're supposed to be is a light to the world. And so in your outlines, there's this first little thought there that I just want to give you that's kind of a foundation, what I just really believe is very important for us to, to comprehend, and that's this. I believe that the dangerous church of our day will address this issue. I believe the dangerous church will be known by its deed matching its creed. I do. I believe the church that will challenge many, that will get us off center, that is going to uh, be a part of a movement that is going to keep us from being complacent and just very consumer-oriented. Uh, I believe it's going to be a church that is focused on its deed, our actions and what we do and what we are about matches who we say we are, our creed, the thing that we live by and we say that we are all about the greatest compliment I have heard in the last year about Austin New Church is when a neighbor went by my house, saw the sticker on the back of my car that said Austin New Church, and said, do you go to that church? And I said, yeah, I do. And she said, I hear you guys do great things. I almost bawled. I'm like, yeah, cool, thanks. <laughs> greatest compliment I've ever heard. So let's look into Acts. Book of Acts. First, I want to give you a framework. I want to give you, uh, what is it, five things here? Kind of overall general outline about it. We'll go through these quickly about the book of Acts throughout this series. First thing is, is the book of Acts records the Acts of the Apostles. If you thought, well, why do they call it Acts? It's about the Acts of the Apostles. It's what it is. It's the actions, the thing that they did. It's the book of their action, not just the what that Jesus talked about, but the how they actually went forward and the what and the timing of all of that. It's also historically, you know, it's one of the most historically substantiated books of the Bible. Do you know that? It's been critiqued. The dates of it have just been critiqued and the time of it and all these things that have happened. It's, it's, it's one of the most historically substantiated books in the Bible, which also then means it's the historically substantiated account of the early church. I remember sitting in ninth grade world history when I was reading this history book, secular history book that spoke of this man named Jesus Christ. And I thought, do they know this is in here? You know, someone's in trouble. He was a real dude. History does not deny this. There's some really cool things about that. It records the acts of the apostles. Second is it shows the spread of the gospel of Jesus. It's an example of how it spreads in its purest form. And also is an expression of good news, not just to the Jews, but also to the Gentiles. The cool thing you'll see in Acts 1 is that it's written to uh, Theophilus, who was also, the book of Luke was written to, and it's rumored, it's thought of, that he is a Roman official. Some believe he was a relative of, of Caesar, okay? Which is saying that this message is also for the Roman world. It's symbolic for the Jews as well as the Gentiles, that it's expression of good news to all. Number three, it also transitions from old uh, to new covenant. Old and New Covenant, while we tend to think in Old and New Testaments, obviously because the book is written in this way, it represents a different way in which we must relate with 
God. All right? And so it outlines what that looks like, the message of this gospel. Going from our righteous acts, which scriptures say are filthy rags, to be able to rely on his righteous act on the cross. I've had kind of a rekindled interest in studying world religions recently just because of some conversations I've had with some recent friends. And the one thing that I've found, you can argue all kinds of things about the practice of the different churches and the ceremonies and the sacrifices and the way we live and the morals and the ethics and all these things. The difference between Christianity and every other single world religion is who they believe Christ to be. And the fact that... Christianity has nothing to do with our righteousness. It has to do with his. And it's about a, a God pursuing us instead of us, you know, trying to get up there. Because it doesn't work. That's the difference who Jesus is in this new covenant. Fourth, it highlights the source of our strength. When I think about what it means to be a believer when you think about a life of righteousness, when Jesus says, be holy for I am holy, raise your hand if you're holy. You know what I'm saying? Talk about a big task at hand here. I get overwhelmed in many of us when we think about that, the task of Christianity, we get frozen even before we begin. All right? It talks about our source, that all that God asks us to do, we cannot do on our own, and it Acts outlines where that source of strength comes from. And finally, it shows directly how God uses the least. Or you could say God uses the biggest sinners or the most messed up people or whatever, however you want to put that. Because it's just a reminder that there were these dudes that didn't, bless you, there were these dudes who uh, did not get selected as disciples by all the other cool rabbis. And so they were stuck with a life of being you know, professional fishermen, which honestly doesn't sound like that bad of a deal, but when sport fishing, I mean, it was all night net fishing, you know, hard work stuff. And, and this guy named Jesus called him out and said, you can be my disciples. And these were the guys, this, you know, this ragtag group of guys who denied Christ and, you know, acted out of anger and cut a dude's ear off. And <laughs> these were the guys that Jesus said, you're going to start my church. So it reminds us directly how God uses the least, which is, a, which is good news to us. Um, and an example to each of us that we can have hope that Jesus can use us as well. So Acts 1, verse 1. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven. After giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen... After his suffering, talking about the cross, he showed himself to these men and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days. 40 days? I need to talk about some intense. Wouldn't that have been awesome? He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion while he was eating with them, he gave them this command, Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days, you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So when they met together, they asked him, Lord, uh, at this time, are you going to restore the kingdom of, to, to Israel? The same way, you know, they've been hoping for this 
whole time. And he said to them, it's not for you to know the times or the dates the Father set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And then after this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. So he was just gone. Verse 10, they were looking intently up into the sky as he was going when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand there looking into the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go to heaven. So remember, the church as we know it at this point does not exist. Jesus was giving instructions and then he you know, took off. And in his final words, he's setting the table for the coming church. And he focuses on three key things that I want to point out today. This is really hard for me because there's so much in this. For those of you who don't know, Matthew's doing a blog on Acts, really in-depth, really awesome. We can get that information to you, but just really drills into this. I want to give you three mega themes that Jesus speaks about. All right, which is really a summary of everything he's going through that we saw in the book of John. He does three things. First, he proclaims the kingdom. He proclaims the kingdom. In, in verse 3, it said that he appeared to them for how long? A period of 40 days, and he spoke about the kingdom of God. This was his topic. And I can imagine he talked about the kingdom of God in the form of love. And I can imagine he would say the kingdom of God is like this. And the kingdom of God is like that. And and I believe that he spent time helping them understand fully uh, what the kingdom of God was. But he proclaimed that during those 40 days. It was a key topic that he had prior to his ascension. It was also a key part, if you remember, of his prayer. When he said, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Remember, thy kingdom come. If you pray... You should pray this. God, your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It was a key part of his prayer, and it was a key part of his teaching throughout. Look back to Luke chapter 12. If you have a Bible, flip back a couple chapters or a couple books. The third chapter of the New Testament, chapter 12, starting in verse 22 and 23, and then we'll read verse 32 and 33. Here's what Jesus said. (laughs) We can just plug this into our lives right now. He says, do not worry about your life. What you will eat or about your body, what you will wear. Life is more than food and the body more than clothes. Do not be afraid, little flock. He calls them his little flock. Do not be afraid, little flock, for your father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. Do you remember when Jesus told Peter on this faith I will build my church and I will give you the keys to the kingdom. He said, the Father's been pleased to give you the kingdom. Verse 32, sell your possessions and give to the poor. Provide purses for yourselves. We're not just talking like a man purse or whatever. It's talking about (laughs) provide what you need, okay? And it's going to talk about a little bit more what that means provide purses for yourselves that will not wear out that are not temporal but invest 
the things of value and the things that are eternal. A treasure in heaven that will not be exhausted. Where no thief comes near and no moth destroys. This is a promise as much as it is an instruction, you know. Jesus is reminding us that all kingdom things have eternal value. And his call to kingdom-mindedness is eternal. I was thinking about this today. It's like there is nothing as a believer that Satan can take from you that has eternal value. It's all temporal. It's all stuff. You know, the greatest trial is something temporary. If we truly have an eternal perspective, truly, there is nothing. And he challenges us to put our, th- our, our heart and our mind on kingdom things, which are eternal things. second thing he does is he promises the Spirit. Look in verse 4 and 5. It says, Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift of my Father, that gift my Father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. This is the promise of, of the Pentecost, where the Holy Spirit comes in and makes all the difference in the world. Maybe that's where that phrase came from. You know what makes all the difference in the world? Really? Holy Spirit. <laughs> it does. <laughs> Acts 2 is when we talk about Pentecost just in a couple of weeks. It's this promise where the Holy Spirit resides in each of us and we get the power and the encouragement, the strength, and the counsel of God. I got ahead of myself. Promise of the Pentecost which is the promise of power, not knowledge. We want knowledge, don't we? God, I just want to do this for you. If you just tell me all the details, that'd be cool. All right, tell me how it's supposed to look, and I'll get there for you. All right, can I, can I do that for you? Look what verse 7 and 8 say about the Spirit, about knowledge, and about power. He says, it is not for you to know. It's not for you to know the times or the dates. It says, but you will receive power. The knowledge is not ours. The power is ours through the Spirit. And then the final thing is the promise of the prophecy. I love just what Jesus told everybody. You remember when he was in John 14, when he was letting all the disciples know, hey, got some news to break to you guys. I'm heading out. And they're like, what? What are we going to do? And he's like, don't worry, because I'm going to send the counselor. That was supposed to be encouraging to them. <laughs> I wonder if they're still panicking. Oh, great. Who's this dude, you know? Um, Jesus knew this was the gift that we needed in order to do what he was going to call us to do. You know, he's not going to give us the job without giving us the tools. And he promises us the spirits, the fulfillment of this prophecy, but it's this gift and it is the power. My most frequent prayer for ANC is, the, is for the power of the Spirit. It is. Why? Romans 7 tell us, tells us that we're no longer under the law because of Christ. We're no longer under this law that binds us. But instead we serve in the new way of the Spirit. And, and it, that brings freedom. The Spirit changes lives. The Holy Spirit is what changes our hearts and what changes our minds. You and I cannot decide, you know what, I'm going to feel this way now. <laughs> Have you tried that? I'm going to love the poor so much now from here on. <clears throat> you know what, I'm going to want to study the Bible now. Ready, God? Go. <laughs> I'm going to pray more because I want to now. The Holy Spirit 
does that. It's the work of the Spirit to change our hearts, change our minds. You know, if we, I don't know about you, but you know, when, I, when I'm having a day or a week or a year or whatever where I just don't sense the movement of the Spirit, it's just frustrating. Because I just don't think as believers we're supposed to live our lives powerless. I just don't. And yet, I believe that many times we settle for that. We just think, well, you know, I'm not as spiritual as Jesus Jr. over here, and so the Spirit's going to be really rolling with him. Me, you know, I'll just, I'll just do whatever. I'll roll into church every now and then, or whatever, you know. It's not what Jesus promised. He promised the Spirit for all. And then the last thing is that Jesus provides the mission. Verse 8, he reminds us of this in the last part. He says, you will be my witnesses. In Jerusalem, Austin, in Judea, Texas, and Samaria, the United States of America, and to the ends of the earth. It affirms the sentence of the church. This is a very big mission. Did you catch it? Very big mission. It's a God-sized mission. And it's the very last thing that Jesus told him. It said this, you will be um, my witnesses. A couple days ago, I was driving uh, my oldest son home from a swim party that he had. And I looked over. <laughs> I, I was contemplating even doing this story, but I'm going to. Um, so we were driving along, and, and I was watching him, and, and he was starting to squirm a little bit. You know, sitting up, doing this. I'm like, buddy. I said, do you have to go to the bathroom? You know? Um, he's like, no. And I'm like, uh, what's the problem? You're squirming all over the place. Because, I mean, we can pull over. There's a really nice tree. There was a quick trip, whatever. And uh, he's like, no. I'm like, what's wrong? You're wiggling. He's like, my, my butt itches. <laughs> <laughs> and... Um, I'm like, well, scratch it. No. Um, and I looked at him and I said, you got bleacher butt. And he's like, what's bleacher butt? I said, well, you know how when we've gone to a football game or a basketball game and you're sitting on that hard bleachers after a while, it starts itching. Maybe guys may whirl, you know, it starts. Anybody had that at all? Okay, that's what I'm talking about. And you just, there's nothing you can do. All you can do is stand up, move around, whatever. I said, it's kind of like that with swimming. I think guys only get bleacher butt after swimming because they have those meshed underwear sewn in the inside of their shorts. And they sit down on them and it kind of gives that itchy thing. And I said, I said, you got bleacher butt. And he said, that, he just laughed. He thought that was the coolest thing he ever heard in his life. Um, there's something going on in the church. I dare say that the church has a really bad case of bleacher butt. But you know what? It kind of does. Because what's happening is, is there are people who have been in church a lot of their lives. And they've been sitting there, you know? And all of a sudden, starting to get the itch, you know? And it's like, i got to get up and do something. And there's something going on in the church. It's very real. How many times have you heard lately of even people you know have been in church all their life where it's just like there's got to be more than this? I think this is a really good thing but it draws out something in our nature as well that we need to deal with all right and it's something that was brought up here in verses 10 and 11 because after the son of God just commissioned the disciples to go and get to work they stood there like 
And it's like this comical thing because God's like, all right, send in the angels, you know, and the angels are there, and they're like, what are you guys looking at, you know? And they tap on the shoulder and they say, why are you guys still looking? You know what you're supposed to be doing. Go do it. (laughs) Men of Galilee, why do you stand here looking into the sky? I think this is a good thing. Big idea. The book of Acts shows what will happen when Christ's followers live on mission through the power and the leading of the Holy Spirit and focus on the kingdom of God. Here's a hard truth that I think we need to discuss or at least say. Just because we believe in Christ does not mean we're following Christ. Do you agree with that? And I think for a long time we've just thought, okay, I got it. I believe in Christ. I got saved. I got baptized. Good enough. All right? I was watching Texas Hold'em on ESPN. How, how did Texas Hold'em get on ESPN? Um, but I watch it all the time. So, And I'm watching this, and I'm watching the pros, and they're playing. And when they go all in, you can see them studying the jokers at the table you know and you can see the their their pulse in their forehead because they're so scared and they have this one episode that they do where they literally hook guys up to heart monitors so you can watch it on your tv and you're like this guy's about to pass out this is awesome you know and it's just that degree all in moment you know what i'm talking about when the heart rate goes up and it's just that test of where um you are here's the thing about the dangerous church The dangerous church will always press you to that crossroads where you have to choose between self and the way of Christ. It will always press you there. It will always press you to that all-in moment where you are going to have to decide between the way you want to do it and the way Jesus wants to do it. I pray that that's the kind of church we always are. And what's going to happen is there's really not going to be room for the people in the middle who don't want to do either. But I think what's going to happen is those who are really wanting to seek and understand Christ and those that are really wanting to follow Christ, I think they're going to be transformed and they're going to be a part of something great. Let's pray.